Welcome to the Forbidden Apple Podcast, where we explore the relationship between queer people and religion. They say faith can move mountains, and we want to know what faith means to you. Join our conversation as we discuss overcoming prejudices, find common ground, and celebrate our differences. A former Orthodox Jew and a Spanish-raised Catholic meet weekly and sink our teeth into the Forbidden Apple. Forbidden. The Forbidden Apple. And welcome to another episode of The, the Forbidden, Forbidden Apple. Apple. I am Melissa Weiss. I am Pelayo Alvarez. And today we have Nora Berman with us. <laughs> How are you, Nora? Doing great. I'm so excited to be here. This is awesome. Really, uh, We're so excited to have you, yeah. too. Uh, I was so interested uh, to learn... Uh, when we met first about your upbringing and how you grew up going to these retreats, <laughs> practicing uh, meditation and uh, practicing Buddhism, right? Also mm -hmm. uh, with your family. Tell us a little bit more about how it is uh, to grow up like that. Yeah, so my family, we're kind of a big mix of religions. Uh, my father is Jewish and my mother is I guess born Christian or Protestant, but growing up, my parents were following this Buddhist, this Vietnamese Buddhist monk whose name is Thich Nhat Hanh, and he he's pretty famous. Dr. Martin Luther King nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize. He was exiled from Vietnam, like during the Vietnam War. Anyways, and so I it happened to be where I was growing up in Vermont that there was a Dharma center, how they call it, which was 20 minutes away. And at this Dharma center, uh, it was mostly Vietnamese Buddhist monks and nuns, but there were also North American and European monks and nuns as well. And they lived there on this property and they would host uh, Dharma talks and like long weekends of meditations. And so my parents were taking me all the time. And uh, as a kid, I... I really enjoyed talking to the monks and nuns. I did not like sitting still. Um, the meditation at the time, I was only 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Who likes sitting still when you no are? One, <laughs> no one can sit still at 10 years old. And uh, there are also a lot of like big Buddhist ideas that at the time, like there's this Buddhist concept of there is no self, like there is no I, there is no ego. And as a little kid, that's a really, I mean, even as an adult, that's a very big idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like, I, you know, I, I was very uncomfortable with it as a kid, but still I was there all the time. I was with my family. And it's interesting. It's only as I've gotten older as an adult that I realized how much those like Buddhist ideas, just like how much I kind of absorbed without even being aware of it as a kid. My parents even at the time would never identify as Buddhist. You know, they always would say, you know, we are, we're meditators, we are lay people, which is like the term for non monks and nuns, like people mm -hmm. showing up are lay people. But like, you know, we, the Buddhist traditions that we brought home would be, we would always ring a bell. I don't know if you've ever seen those like little circular bells um, that people hit with like a little stick. It's a singing bowl, oh, they yeah, call yeah, it. Yeah. Um, so we had that at home and we would ring that before dinner. Um, and then we'd have a little Buddhist prayer we'd say before dinner. But that was kind of it. Like it wasn't, we weren't vegetarian, which is a Buddhist thing. You know, my parents drank alcohol, which like, you know, for strict Buddhists, you don't do those things. Um, and I still had a Christmas tree, you know, growing up. And I still had my Jewish grandparents that were very, very strongly culturally Jewish and very interested in me knowing that I was Jewish and would get very nervous if I 
seemed too Buddhist or seemed too... They, they didn't mind necessarily that we celebrated Christmas, but they were very concerned that I didn't forget that I had this heritage, if that makes sense. So I kind of had all these three things sort of in the mix yeah. as a kid. Did they ever explain to you why they uh, come from two different traditions and then together uh, were... Practicing Buddhism? Well, a little bit. My mom has kind of always been a spiritual seeker. Like, she has sort of gone through a lot of different... She's kind of um, had a lot of different spiritual teachers of different faiths. So I would say mostly, like, different Christian teachers. And then for her in college, she was drawn to Buddhism and meditation. For my dad, it's honestly more complicated. I, I think that he has never felt comfortable or he's always been very insecure in his lack of knowledge about Judaism mm. and and also I think his own lack of interest in Judaism like the story he always told me was you know I was in Hebrew school once when I was like 11 we had just moved to Florida my mom put me in Hebrew school for the first time I was behind all of the other kids that had been in Hebrew school for years and so one day my mom was like my grandmother said to him, oh, so Hebrew school ends at the end of May. And it technically went through like the end of July. And my dad was like, yep, it ends in May. And so that was it. Like he stopped Hebrew school. He didn't, he, I don't think he had a bar mitzvah. Um, and so it's kind of a mystery. Like he's just never felt very connected and never had that interest. But I think he's kind of ashamed. It's something that now as an adult, as I identify as a Jew, and it's something I am much knowledgeable about. I think for him, it's kind of scary or a little bit threatening because like my Judaism, my Jewishness comes from him, but it's something that he's not connected to, if that makes sense. But so, his parents were connected to it. Are those the parents that... Yeah, his parents were connected to it. They were always members of shuls, you know. They were still, I would describe them as probably reformed Jews. Like they're mm -hmm. only going to temple for the high holidays, you know. I, they definitely didn't keep a kosher home, like I don't think. But they, you know, initially when he met my mom, they didn't want them to get married because my mom wasn't Jewish. They didn't attend their wedding, they said, because my mm. mom wasn't Jewish. Mm. That was the reason they gave. Um, so, and one time as a kid, they thought that from a distance, the earrings I was wearing looked like crosses and my grandmother just started hysterically crying and thought that I was like this Christian or Catholic or whatever. So like... It was kind of in things like that, but it was never like um, we lived far away from them. So it wasn't like I was exposed to them that often to really participate in Judaism, like with them, if that makes sense. But it was very clear growing up that like they were Jewish. I was Jewish um, and it wasn't something that they wanted me to ever forget, if, if that makes sense. But like I never did. I never went to temple with them. I never did Shabbat prayers with them. Um, so it's kind of. It's complicated, you know. I think for them, they, at least for my grandfather, my Jewish grandfather, his father um, came to this country escaping pogroms in Ukraine, or I guess what's now Ukraine. Um, and it was a very traumatic journey to the United States. And the assimilation to the United States was very, very difficult um, for them. And so I think that it, the Jewish... The connection to Jewish tradition in a real way, at least on my father's side, kind of died when that when that my great grandparents came here, because I think they just went through so much trauma that it was something. And I know they were discriminated against when they got to this country like they couldn't. My grandfather couldn't open a gas station in this particular part of town like they made him open a gas. My great grandfather, rather, they you know put him outside of town like they mm -hmm. couldn't join certain 
clubs, you know, like, and so I think it was just kind of something that they wanted to leave behind um, and it didn't get passed down as strongly as maybe in other families. Yeah. That's interesting because it seems like they wanted you to know that you're Jewish and yet your father wasn't so connected to it and there's, there's probably like such deep shame and, and, and pain and other things connected to that. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And then it's also the gener, you know, for my great grandparents generation, like there's so much, there was so much trauma and just also like a lack of knowledge about, um, about them. Like I didn't find out until I was 28, like four years ago that my great grandmother committed suicide when she got to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and my, uh, I've only heard stories that my great grandfather was a really angry individual. Like he wasn't a nice person. And I, so I can only imagine how much trauma and shame mm-hmm. he was experiencing. You know, I know for a fact that he back in Ukraine in Odessa is where they were from, um, that he was a shopkeeper. And when he came to this country, um, when they were refugees, um, one of the Rothschilds in England had bought all of this land for Jews, for Jews fleeing Europe um, to resettle in the United States. And the intention was for those Jews to become tobacco farmers. And my great grandfather like was not a farmer. He had no idea what he was doing. And so he failed really badly at that and then had to sort of figure out a new career, which I guess was owning this gas station. And so, you know, that's another level of shame and not being able to sort of use this gift that someone had given you to help come to this country. you know, but these are all things I had to figure out on my own. My parents were not sharing this with me. My grandparents were not sharing this with me. I had to reach out to other family members to sort of learn this stuff. So the Buddhism is something that you grew up with. And you talked about um, this stuff that now, as you get older, you realize how much it influ- like influenced your life. So I want to know about that. How has it influenced your life? Are there rituals that you keep? Do you still do some of the things that you were taught? Definitely. There's um, one of the things that I, the only thing that I loved doing as a kid was walking meditation um, because walking meditation basically is just um, you're going for, through, for a walk and all it means is to um, pay attention to your breath and um, to be sort of aware of your surroundings. Um, and as a kid, I loved doing that. I was like, it was going on long walks in these like beautiful fields and woods in Vermont and that um, I really enjoy it and it's something that I still really enjoy and I find that when I'm getting anxious or stressed out if I like come back to my breath and literally just think I'm breathing in I'm breathing out I'm breathing in I'm breathing out um, that's something that kind of stayed with me um, I think it's kind of in, it's in a deeper way that I um, the concepts like of mindfulness or meditation or sort of um, those bigger ideas of like that there is no ego, there is no self, everything is impermanent, you know. Um, it, it, they, it's, it's hard to describe as I've gotten older, but those things just make sense to me in a really, really deep way. And so mm-hmm. I don't like, there, I know like for example, I have other friends who are raised very like um, Christian or evangelical. And whenever something bad happens in their lives, there's always this sort of cry of like, why did God allow this? You know, how could there be a God if, you know, this tragedy happens? And for me growing up, it's not that I don't feel pain when those like events happen, but I don't, I know that like the universe is random and I know that there it's, everything is kind of in flow. Like there's karma and things just sort of happen and I don't feel 
the same sense of outrage at like this mm-hmm. higher power that's betraying me. You know, it's like every like everybody dies, everybody suffers. There's not really the only meaning you can make out of that is what you make of it. There's no no one there's no one above that's punishing yeah. you, you know? Is there any like particular moment where these teachings were useful? Like if you could pinpoint anything that you had to go through? Yeah, actually so when I was um when I was sixteen, my junior year of high school, I had the opportunity to um I was living in France for the year. Um and I was studying with other Americans but um speaking only in French, like during the day. And in one of our classes we had to debate um the death penalty um, and the teacher assigned at random like half the class you have to argue for it and half the class you have to argue against it um, and I was assigned to the part that argued against the death penalty and I got um, incredibly emotional during that debate and got really really upset and at first I couldn't really understand why I was so outraged at hearing the arguments for the death penalty because mm-hmm. I was like this is just a class like we're just doing this exercise you know and I realized because it was so deep down like I had internalized these Buddhist ideals of do no harm you know the Buddhist um, this Buddhist monk that sort of the father of this movement my parents are part of Thich Nhat Hanh or Thai is how he's known by his students You know, he was part of Dr. King's nonviolence, you know, um, movement. And he, um, there's a long tradition of Buddhist monks and nuns similarly sort of um, using nonviolence to stand up for political causes and things that are right. And there isn't this sense of vengeance, you know, after someone dies or to get back at someone because the precept is to do no harm and that ultimately the person that is hurting you is suffering more than you are. Um, that people only hurt others when they're in pain. And so um, I didn't realize until we were debating this thing how at a deep level I was like, no, I could never, like, I, you know, even if someone like murdered my family, like it would be hard, really hard for me to want them to die, mm-hmm. you know, on a really deep level. Like, and it was the first time that that kind of occurred to me. I was like, oh, this really got in very deep because I just can't identify with these arguments, like with this idea for vengeance or this idea for like an eye for an eye, you know, which is, um, yeah, that was, that was the first time where I was really aware of like, oh, this is a, I, I'm Buddhist in this way, you know, in this, in this way. Are there any um, concepts that you think either Judaism and Buddhism, like co- any conflicts with that or are, are there complementary um, teachings? I think there's a lot of complementary teachings. Um, I would say, so the biggest ways that they would differ is that in Buddhism, there isn't a God. There isn't this monotheistic figure like the Buddha himself attained enlightenment and is like anybody can attain an enlightenment, you know, so it's not that's the biggest difference is that um, there's not a larger power sort of. Um, but in terms of complementary, I think so many things i mean like you know the hillel quote um this this jewish sage says um like someone asked him what's the most important thing in judaism he said i'm butchering it but he's like basically do no harm to other humans or treat others as you want to be treated and the rest of the torah is just commentary you know so like the golden rule of treating people and treating people well and um how you'd want to be treated as something that's really strong in buddhism as well the whole do no harm you know Mm. there's buddhist monks that won't step on a bug you know they'll step aside (laughs) like you know and i think also 
the idea in Judaism that you don't worship false idols um, is really strong in Buddhism as well. Because in Buddhism, like all of the sort of um, idols or even people, anything that's sort of in this material realm, everything is impermanent. So it's not something that you should ever worship or be attached to because you everything goes away ultimately and what led you to uh between buddhism and, and judaism mm -hmm. what made you go into like this deep search that uh you have been of uh, judaism it kind of started as a kid because i was always asked where i was from um people always thought i looked different and i was kind of surprised i never really understood that um And I also had a lot of people making fun of my last name as a kid, which was a very Jewish, my maiden name is a very Jewish sounding, is a very Jewish name. Um, so I kind of knew that I was different, but like as a kid, I hadn't done that many Jewish things. So I didn't really understand why I was being teased for it. Um, and then as I got older, I sort of began to realize that I was naturally gravitating towards Jewish writers, Jewish musicians, Jewish intellectuals, like all of these people that I was sort of just reaching out for and really interested in the culture and art or whatever that they were producing, I sort of realized, oh, they're all Jewish. <laughs> you know, there's something deep that I'm really drawn to about this faith, um, or at least this culture. And I always felt very like I, I always wanted to be sort of in Jewish spaces. Like I was so excited the first time I went to my like first Jewish deli as a kid, you know, like it sounds silly, but like all of these things I felt very drawn to. And it wasn't until I was in high school or maybe like early college um, where I was really like, you know, I this is a whole half of my family that I don't really know that much about. You know, I had never had a Shabbat dinner before. Um, I had never really celebrated a Jewish holiday before. In college, I was around a lot of Canadian Jews. There were a lot of Jews from Toronto and Montreal. Montreal is a big Jewish community, so I was sort of exposed to it more. Um, and just sort of realizing that how many things I had in common with people, like that sense of alienation and a lot of people whose families had either, whether they were had Holocaust survivors in their family or had come to this country and been forced to assimilate, you know, a lot of us had a lot of common stories um, or things that, that we shared. And so um, that was when I began to sort of like, I went to a synagogue for the first time, you know, and started kind of like, reading more about Judaism because I didn't even really understand. I was like, what are its beliefs? You know, like, I know that I'm not supposed to eat pork and I know that I'm not supposed to eat mm -hmm. meat and milk together, you know, but like, what's the bigger, like, spiritual message? Um, so I started kind of really just reading a lot. And I also was kind of dating a lot of Jewish people. I realized that the people that I was attracted to often were Jews, which was something like wasn't conscious, but like a lot of the people that I dated, men and women were, were Jewish. It was still kind of shaky though, because I felt like a poser because I didn't know anything. You know, I didn't know any prayers. I felt really uncomfortable going to synagogues because I didn't know what was going on. And it really wasn't until I met my now husband that, um, and he had a very different upbringing than me, that I really began to be part of a Jewish family and really began to see on a deeper level, like, oh, there are so many things about this faith that I feel like I've been searching for, for my, all my life, you know, and um, I really see myself as like whatever trauma my Jewish family experienced coming to this country um, and you know whatever they experienced that made them sort of put Judaism to the side I feel like I get to be the link that sort of takes that back up again and I get to define and sort of start a new Jewish lineage 
for myself. Um, uh, and I feel a lot of like pride in that, you know, like it, it breaks my heart to think about like my great grandmother that committed suicide coming to this country because she couldn't be Jewish. She couldn't assimilate. She couldn't sort of be herself here. And so it's really powerful for me to be able to be, um, like a Jewish woman, a queer Jewish woman defining what this faith means for me. Um, what does this faith mean for you? What does being Jewish mean? Well, it means a lot of it is the community. It means being a part of this this a people. You know, it's not just a, a religion, but it's a people. The other part of it is that I really see principles in Judaism, like the idea of justice um, and standing up for others, and like particular, like the most powerful thing to me in Judaism is like to that you were once a stranger basically and so you always welcome the stranger into your house mm-hmm. um and i think that idea is so profound particularly now you know when this country is trying to say some people don't belong here they don't get to be american they don't get to, we don't there's like right now it just just seems like we're not supposed to take care of each other and i feel like judaism at its best is really about welcoming people into your home and and standing up for those that were you know, that are persecuted because Jews have been persecuted our entire history. That, those ideas and those principles that speak really, really strongly to me. And I think that I still have a lot to learn from like Jewish men and women, whether it's rabbis or just other spiritual, other figures, um, that they have a lot to teach, you know, that those ideals are really, really important. You mentioned um, being queer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted to talk to you about what does so we talked about what Judaism means to you what does queerness mean to you what does being queer mean to you that's interesting I don't know it's interesting because I think as a when I was younger um and not as comfortable in my queerness I didn't think I was queer because it didn't feel as much of an active verb if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. um I wasn't I was still like sort of dating women and stuff but I didn't feel as comfortable in it because I didn't look as gay as I thought I was supposed to um, so I sort of thought queerness was a verb, like as a kid. <laughs> um, and now queerness means to me, um, this like beautiful, um, fluidity, um, and openness, like not just about like sexual attraction, um, but really an openness to people that are different and people that are marginalized. And it, it queerness is an, it's interesting. So I have the Jewish half of my family and then my queerness um, my mother's father was gay, um, my my Christian grandfather, I guess, and he died in the closet. He never was able to be out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I feel so much pride in as well, to be able to carry on that lineage. Like, I get to be out and I get to be in, in these spaces or, you know, dating p- other women and queer people or, or even just like being active in queer causes feels like I get to continue and live something that he was never able mm. to. Did you, you ever, know? you never, obviously, you never talked to your grandpa about this. Did No, he died when I was 10 and I was um, close to him and we shared like he was, obs- he was an amazing chef. He was obsessed with antiques. He was obsessed with musical theater and opera and art. And so those were things I shared with him. Um, but I never really, I don't think my mom told me that he was gay until after he died, um, because she had reached out to him 
while he was still alive. Like he had a roommate, Ray, I'm making air quotes, um, mm-hmm. for his entire, basically after he got divorced from my grandmother, he had a roommate, Ray, for his entire life. Um, and my mom, I guess, at some point before I was born, wrote him a letter saying essentially that she knew that he was gay and that she accepted him and loved him and he never responded. Um, so he couldn't even be out to his own mm-hmm. daughter. So I didn't know as a kid, it was only as I was older, like after he died that my mom told me. And that was really, really, I can't imagine what it would be like to not be able to be who you are your entire life. Um, And particularly, you know, when my my mom was born in North Carolina and both of her parents, my grandmother and grandfather, were doctors. um, And my grandfather was caught fooling around with one of his male patients. And so this was North Carolina in 1955. You know, and so they had to escape to California, like the whole town kind of turned on them and they had to run away to California. Um, And then they eventually got divorced. But I I can't imagine what that must have been like. So I feel a lot of pride in in continuing his legacy, too, you know, as a queer person. A lot of of like legacy. Like it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All that on your shoulders. Wow. But it's just a lot of people like... It's just a lot of people that weren't able to live their truth. Yeah. Where do you find the difficulties in living your truth? You probably are not like facing such a tragic realities where you cannot be yourself 100%, mm-hmm. but do you find like any uh, resistance against being your 100% self? Yeah, definitely. Because I identify as queer or bisexual, I kind of use those terms interchangeably. I kind of feel too straight for gay spaces sometimes, and I feel too gay for straight spaces. I I feel resistance. I re- it's, it's sad, but I probably feel the most resistance from the queer community in relationship to my own queerness. You know, there's a lot of the gay sp- or queer spaces that I am a part of will explicitly say no cis men are, are allowed. You know, so I feel like bisexual or queer men, queer cis men are really... I feel like they are the most marginalized group in a lot of ways in the queer community because they don't really have a space. And so when I go into gay spaces or queer spaces, I guess, I feel like if I mention my husband that I'm immediate, like there's just sort of this silence and this kind of chilliness. And, you know, if people see my wedding ring and will ask about, oh, like, where is your wife? And when I respond, it's my husband. There's just kind of this like silence. Like it's not... That's why as a filmmaker and as a writer, it's so important to me to show sexual fluidity for all those genders and particularly with bi- for showing bisexuality because I think it gets such a terrible rap in media. Like bi people, like bi women are seen as like super slutty, not faithful. You know, it's something that can be really hot for straight men to look at. But like, um, you know, if you're, if you're a bisexual woman and you're dating a man, you're not to be trusted. You know, there's this, like, all of these, like, messages that, like, bi people are not trustworthy, mm-hmm. you know, or they're gonna, like, you can't commit or something, you know? And, like, I think it's so negative, and I think it's also, and particularly for bi men, like, there's no representation. Bisexual, yeah, we need more of it. <laughs> we need more of it. Tell us more how you are incorporating in your art, in your films, uh, these kind of characters. Well, I one the one thing that I'm really interested in is in the works that I'm writing is to try to write less of the character's gender, like to leave it more open to be played by people of a lot of different genders um, or different sexualities. And inter- and like it also informs the sort of stories I tell. Like you know, for example, a short film that I've written and I'm directing in the next few months is about a queer cis couple who's 
non-monogamous who, you know, they discover that they get bed bugs and they begin to blame each other's partners. Like they're suspicious that it must be the other person's partners that they brought in. You know, like I really want to, I'm really interested in normalizing not just non-monogamy, but queerness, because I think that it's a lot more common than people realize and that it would be a lot less there would just there would just be so much less stigma if we saw these kind of images growing up you know like i like queer people that look different there's there's no one way to look queer there's no one way to be queer and like for myself you know i thought growing up because i didn't look like this sort of like bull dyke like i had katie lang cds at home and i was like well i don't look like her so like i must not be attracted to women because i'm more feminine looking than that or i still am attracted to men so like i don't belong in this and if i had seen more like femme presenting by women or people you know growing up in media like i would have been much more comfortable being out and being you know i owning really who i was but i always felt like i didn't look gay enough so i couldn't be in those spaces or i couldn't date those people you know and like there's no one way to be a cis gay man there's no one way to be a lesbian there's no one way to be bisexual you know like that's i think that's why i'm interested in making art like that it's not about necessarily making the story just as someone's coming out story or completely focusing on their mm -hmm. queerness as like the, mm -hmm. the crux of the narrative but really just like i want to show all different kinds of people and different kinds of relationships to have that representation you know yeah, yeah. and just living just living. Just living. <laughs> just people, what do they do? Yeah. <laughs> what do they do? <laughs> yeah, what do people do, what you know? Yeah, we do more things than just coming out and uh, having sex with people with the same or uh, non the same. Gender. Yeah, and that's something I think that queer people, all we all are immediately sexualized once we yes. people know our identity because hetero heterosexuality is the norm. And so as soon as you tell someone that you're gay or lesbian or bi, immediately people are thinking of you in a sexual way because like no one is no one is going to say anything about two a straight couple like kissing in the subway or something like that but mm -hmm. as soon as you see two women kiss or two men kiss it's like a political statement you know it's like so different and that's something that i think i also really experienced as a kid like i think that i think that on a deep level sometimes queerness can be felt by others like even if you're not maybe aware of it yourself other people could be picking up on something that's different than you and so as a young kid i definitely felt sexualized at a really young age and i had like men paying attention to me in kind of a creepy way and like while that could just be men being creepy i think they were also picking up on the fact that i was different like that my sexuality was different what about your sexuality within uh jewish spaces how it is received it's interesting i mean like i feel like now particularly in new york city i feel really blessed there's so many like proudly queer jewish spaces and that's really great i i do sort of you know at a certain level I could never be an Orthodox Jew because it's so explicitly like sodomy is explicitly outlawed in Jewish, you know, biblical texts like in the Torah. It doesn't say anything about women because women having sex isn't considered sex. So in those more conservative spaces, it's definitely not okay. I used to work at a very strict kosher restaurant as a waitress in New York and the clientele I worked with was all Orthodox or ultra Orthodox and I would never be, I would not be out there. Um, that would not be a safe space to be, to be out. But in general, I feel like it's very, um, I feel very comfortable in those spaces and I think it's celebrated and just the fact that there are more and more queer rabbis of both genders, you know, I think it's still an issue. You know, there are certain like, uh, the reform movement, 
recognizes gay marriage, but the conservative movement, you can't perform gay marriages if you're mm-hmm. a rabbi. Um, and I have a, I know someone who is a gay conservative rabbi, and he doesn't, you know, perform, he can't perform same-sex marriages, you know? So, like, there's still a lot of work to do, I think, and I think that's always going to be an issue with Judaism because, you know, we're called the people of the book, like this. Mm-hmm. And so this book, for people that take that book literally in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox movements, like, that book is law. Like, what it says, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no room for debate, whereas in conservative and reform movements, it's people recognize that times have changed and like you can have same-sex couples so you know I think it's always going to be uh, a conflict I want to talk a bit about your how people can find you and the work that you do um, so t- promote yourself awesome great well find me on Instagram at at Panda Berman one word you can stay tuned I have a short film that will be coming out this year called BB which is the one I was spoken about before with a polyamorous queer couple getting bed bugs. Um, I think that's really funny. Yeah, I'm it's really funny. So excited. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and in a, in the longer term I've been working on an orthodox uh, lesbian romance mm. feature length film um, which is still in development but it's called Beshert. Uh, yeah. Beshert means meant to be in Yiddish. Um, so please stay tuned for that as well. Hopefully it'll be yeah. Soon. Yes. Yeah. Soon. Yes. And we'll link all these below. So if you yes. have uh, misspelled uh, when you write it, <laughs> uh, because you're a Spanish speaker or because any other reason, <laughs> you can find it below. Yes. Uh, okay. And for the advice, I wanted to know because this idea of like not being enough Jewish, not being enough um, queer, mm-hmm. uh, and, and all this happens to a lot of people with a lot of different words. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to know for anybody who has been or felt uncomfortable because they have pointed out they were not enough X, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. Uh, what would you tell them? Well, I, well, I would tell them the obvious, which is that there is no one way to be queer or be Jewish. Um, but I know that that's kind of hard to internalize when someone just sort of tells you that. So I would tell them to seek out media and seek out places where they feel like they can be those full selves you know I could recommend places that really helped me was even like dumb things like watching tv shows like the l word and queer as folk and like you know the tv show sex education right now on netflix I think does an incredible job of talking about bisexual men queer relationships there's a beautiful friendship that's really the central relationship of the show that is between a straight boy and his best friend who's gay and I think you know there's there really is a lot there the good news is that there is a lot more media and a lot more representations where people I think can find themselves but I really think that it comes back to like at the end of the day if you can really do the work to tell your to try to love yourself for who you are and to really focus on feeling good and developing that confidence and finding those spaces where you can be who you are you know whether it's like even if you live in a place where your family isn't open to that the internet there are so many websites and chat rooms and places where you can connect with other queer people um you know is just help is is just sort of finding others that can affirm who you are you know but i think that that work really starts uh it starts within and like to anybody that's listening that's like queer 
or Jewish like me that comes from their father and not the mother. Maybe you've been told you weren't Jewish. I've been told I've not been, I'm not Jewish so many times. I've been told I wasn't queer enough so many times. I would really, I, I would really strongly advise for you to look in the mirror and to sort of say the words out loud, like I am Jewish or I am queer. And the person that's looking back at you, that's a queer person, that's a Jewish person. There's no one way to look, there's no one way to be you're not more queer because you're still queer even if you've never slept with someone of the same sex. You're still queer even if you are in a relationship where you're with someone of the opposite sex, you know. It's just who you are. If you identify as queer, if you identify as bi, you know, that's who you are. You don't have to do or be anything different, you know. You're you're enough. Beautiful. That's thank great. you, Wait, Nora. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being here. This was really, really cool. And thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for being there every week. Uh, remember to share with your friends, uh, subscribe, review, all that we yeah. repeat. And, and this uh, has been another episode of The, the Forbidden, Forbidden Apple. Apple. I am Melissa White. I am Pelayo Alvarez. Have a wonderful day. Bye bye.